Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Let me begin with a few uh, words here to kind of uh, put this all in in some kind of perspective. Um, If you listen to the show a lot, you probably remember almost a year ago, maybe 11 months ago, uh, a woman came in here, and her name was Nancy Butler. She uh, was a pastor with ALS, Um, and we did a full-length, full-show conversation about that. Um, We've re-aired it once since then. Um, And as some of you who listen carefully to the show probably know, I went to that church to find out about Nancy and her ALS, and then I just stayed. Uh, and now uh, I'm part of that church, so I see Nancy and her ALS uh, all the time. And one of the things that became clear to me uh, early on was that I was watching several kinds of love story. I was watching the love story between, uh, I'm going to start crying here, i got to be careful, uh, between Nancy and Greg, her husband, but also a love story between her uh, and her church family, uh, which I'm now a part of, uh, and other kinds of love stories, love stories blooming even between um, people who come in more or less as paid caregivers, uh, and so Nancy and certainly her caregiver, Valerie, uh, another love story. So I was reasonably well prepared for uh, the movie uh, that, uh, that I was watching to get ready for this show. Uh, we're going to be talking about ALS again, but with different people. Uh, Ember's Left Hand. This is a movie about the, a documentary about the painter John Ember, a remarkable painter um, who also uh, was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, this movie is um, yet another love story. It's a love story about between him and his wife, Jill Hoy, who's with us today. Uh, but also that other same kind of love story of him maybe falling more deeply in love with his friends and the people around him, the people that he wound up painting, uh, and um, and also just discovering an entirely new way of painting. Uh, the reason that we're telling you about this is that the movie is going to be shown on Tuesday of next week at Emanuel Synagogue on Mohegan Drive in West Hartford. Tickets are $12. We'll tell you more about this. It's part of the um, JCC uh, Hartford Jewish Film Festival. Uh, it's a remarkable movie. I really recommend seeing it. It is a love story. It's a story about ALS, and it's kind of an art lesson, too. I mean, I learned... Hmm, Tons more about painting uh, than I knew going in here. So we're going to talk all about that today, but we're also going to talk about this kind of mysterious disease, ALS. Uh, with us in studio to help with that is Dr. Kevin Felice, a neuromuscular neurologist uh, and a director of the Neuromuscular Center at the Hospital for Special Care. He's a professor of neurology at the Yukon School of Medicine. Also with us is Ron Hoffman, uh, and certainly at my church, we know about Ron Hoffman. He's kind of the go-to guy uh, around here uh, and for miles beyond around here uh, for people with ALS. He's the founder and executive director of Compassionate Care ALS and the author of Sacred Bullet, Transforming Trauma to Grace While Tending the Terminally Ill. Um, Jill Hoy, I do want to begin with you. I mean, this disease uh, that uh, John had is a disease of subtraction. It just keeps taking away and taking away. But one of the peculiar things, I've seen this with, uh, with my pastor Nancy, and I see it in the movie too, as it takes away it does reveal other things. You see John Ember in this movie discovering things about himself, things about what he can do, and even ways that he can express himself on canvas that are, are kind of new for him. Yeah. 
um, John was always someone that once he got some ability under his belt, he was often pushing the parameters of the unknown. So that was his modus operandi, and that is, in fact, very much the state of affairs that ALS puts you in. And in some strange way, he he coped, if not thro- throve on it. Mm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, in there, some minute way. Yeah. Um, and you should tell a little bit of the story. I mean, the, the documentary needs to be seen to be really appreciated. But he, he started, he went from a right-hand dominant painter to a left-handed painter and then developed all these other kinds of kinetic adjustments as, uh, um, as in fact, even his left hand became somewhat less reliable, um, but really was able to paint right up to his last days, despite having a disease that kind of takes everything away from you kinetically. Yeah, he always um, loved authenticity, and he wanted his work to be about struggle. That was a key component. So if something was looking good, he'd flip it over, he'd go at it, anything to throw him off. And a painting wasn't viable unless that struggle was innate. So um, that is, as I said, a key component of ALS. And he switched to his left hand, which is basically the first scene in the movie. Um, Dick Kane, the filmmaker, caught that on on screen. And he just loved what was happening. Um, The somewhat crudity made it very honest and yet all the eloquence John's one of the best painters in America which you might as well say it's the world Um, I think he was at the top of his game when ALS started to affect his life and um, he really loved the adventure of painting with his left hand and slowly as his shoulders stopped working and couldn't raise his hands he would put on leg braces, rock with his hips standing, and bob in this very difficult um, mode. And yet these eloquent paintings would happen that some people, and he was saying goodbye to people as he decided to go embark on portraiture. And um, they were about 24 by 24 inch paintings. And it was an excellent way to have a amazing session with your friends or whoever intersected with your life um, and say goodbye, essentially. Let's uh, hear a little bit of the painter's voice himself. This is uh, John Imber uh, from the film in question. Let's just play a clip one there, Wolfie. It's kind of fun to paint because I'm not really thinking about ALS or tremors or anything. Just trying to make a good painting. With all that new painting strokes with the left hand it has a look like abstract expressionism. It's not really what I want to do. I'd like to nail it down a little better with it, but what I've nailed down is kind of um, the anxious stroke. The only thing I haven't gotten rid of is the tilt of the head, which seemed right, right from the beginning. That's questioning. That's the doubt. I wouldn't mind, like, making myself a little more solid. Uh, I mean, so as I've said that, my thought now is to completely redo the head. (laughs) You know, straighten them out, make them look less vulnerable. 
So um, that's John Ember. Um, I want you to meet our other two guests here. I also want to tell you that later on in the show, uh, Jay Fishman, who's the uh, chairman of the board and former CEO of Travelers, uh, will be calling in. Uh, if you've followed his story, uh, he also, uh, Jay Fishman, is dealing with ALS. So um, Ron Hoffman, um, in the movie, something that you say uh, is something that rings very, very true, which is that everybody has to come to their own uh, relationship and accommodation and, and approach to having ALS. But there's a, a way in which you say that kind of embracing it uh, or surrendering to certain parts of it um, can, in fact, kind of open up new worlds. Uh, I'm probably not summarizing that very well or paraphrasing it very well, but, but you can do so much better. Sure. Um Using John as an example, mm. which was an extraordinary uh, experience for me to witness. Um, when we first met, John was very cognizant of what is this going to look like for me? Mm. Not just accessibility, but how will I live the rest of my life? And so immediately we got into these extremely beautiful in-depth conversations about not only living with ALS but dying with ALS. And along the way, John was a wonderful example, example of living with his dying, mm. you know, navigating the complexities, not just of living with ALS, living with his life, but also exploring the reality of his own mortality, of his death. And oftentimes, that's what uh, people, not, well, not oftentimes, everyone is faced with that, but some choose to consciously navigate, others uh, choose other ways. So, um, and, and maybe it's time to try to talk uh, to Kevin Felice a little bit about uh, what this disease is. Um, and, and what this disease is, there are things we know about it and things we don't know about it. But, but at its core, what does it do? At its core, it's a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that, uh, for some reason, targets uh, very precious motor cells that are in the spinal cord and in the brain. And these cells are important for all voluntary movement. And their slow deterioration over time is what eventually leads to muscle weakness, atrophy, and uh, unfortunately difficulties breathing and swallowing, which are the major causes of uh, mortality in, in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a disorder that, although we've grown to understand more over the last 20 years, certainly, since I've started, uh, it still is a, a disorder that we do not know the exact cause of, number one. And number two, we feel that the sporadic cause of ALS may be multiple different disorders, which makes it more complicated. Um, and uh, certainly our approach in many of clinics in the country's approach is until we do find that cure, which we do through clinical trials, which we take from basic research, we're going to do everything we can to try to care for patients with a very challenging uh, disease. It's it's a strange disease in so many different ways, including uh, where we see it is not where it's actually occurring, right? We see it in somebody's uh, growing inability in initially to use one or more of their limbs, but it's not happening in their limbs. It's happening somewhere else. Right. It's happening primarily in the spinal cord, and, and I think um, the movie about John really, when he talks about not sure why his hand was weak and whether it was carpal tunnel, and you know, it begins so insidiously for patients that they're not aware of it. But by the time that they start developing weakness, it usually has uh, really taken root in their in their spinal cord, and and the 
and, and so by the time of the first symptom, patients usually have had the disease for, for a fair amount of time. And, and Ron, you know, in terms of what you do, um, and I've heard a lot of stories about what you do uh, for people, because, you know, Gary's saying that, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, um, Kevin is saying that this is not just one disease. In some ways, it may have like a whole bunch of different uh, sort of models of it or, or, or expressions of it. Um, but it's also, if there's 30,000 people with the disease, in some ways there's 30,000 diseases. They're experiencing it in really, really, really different ways, and they need different things, right? Sure. Yes, and the, um, the, the symptoms of ALS can manifest themselves in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. It can look so unique to so many different people. And so like that, our model is a relational model where we tend to individuals, families, communities, physically, emotionally, spiritually, which means different things to different people. Uh, what we find incredibly important is to truly show up for the individual and their families, but really show up. I refer to it sometimes as the art of showing up and knowing how to listen, knowing how to be present, uh, hopefully maybe bringing calm guidance and awareness to the circumstance for folks. Um, We'll be talking uh, a little bit later with both Kevin and Ron about some of the ways in which there are things that can help um, and and things that different people need. Maybe it would be worth it even just to pause here and talk about that really, really briefly. Not everybody needs or wants even the same device or the same – as a matter of fact, I could go over to Jill for a second. I mean, not everybody wants the same wheelchair, right? I mean, some people – some people want and can really benefit from these incredibly high-tech wheelchairs that look like they sprung out of a Star Wars movie. Um, not necessarily the case, at least initially, for, for John Ember. John really liked his cheap little um, wheelchair. And, you know, when the movie came out in Portland Jewish Film Festival, we had to – Ron gave, loaned us a van – and John had to be strapped into that big one. Oh, he hated it. The electric wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. It, it looked so fabulous, it, but he just um, never bonded with it. But that's part of what you do, right? Sure. Is figure out what the person needs and then find out how to get it. Yeah, the things, the material things, the physical, the, the equipment pieces that we offer for that physical support, that can all look different. And what we offer are things that uh, more times than not insurance doesn't cover. Mm-hmm. just brings more dignity to the quality of life. And in John's case, uh, we had this beautiful electric wheelchair. He just said no to it. Mm-hmm. It didn't work for him. So that's the uniqueness of it. How can we assist people, help them navigate and find things that can enhance the quality of our life, whether it's wheelchairs or assisting them with ramp installations or different items for the bathroom, shower chairs, etc. We have what we call a medicine bag. There's many, many things, mm-hmm. and it's really, really different. There's a litany of things that we bring to the table for people to assist them and, and their families. And it's kind of a logistical obstacle course that not everybody would know how to run. This You are kind of famous for telling people, okay, that's here's how you get that thing, you know, or here's this other thing you didn't know about that you And beyond do. that, this is how you can live your life. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think the biggest question, I think Kevin would agree, someone receives this diagnosis, uh, and I think Jill would concur. John, now, how do you live your life differently now? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, go ahead, Kevin. I, I agree, and it's great to hear that. I, um, you know, everybody has a different journey, as Ron said, and and some people will begin with speech problems and communication. Others with difficulties walking, and still others like, uh, like John, with difficulties w- with his upper extremities. So the journey is different, and 
you know, patients when they get the diagnosis are are certainly deeply saddened, as are as are their families. But then they feel kind of defeated because the medical system that we work with it doesn't really take care of chronic disease as well as it should. And this is a disorder that's difficult because each day you're you're a little bit worse and. Many doctors feel uncomfortable taking care of patients like this because they feel defeated, mm-hmm. you know. So that's that's the importance of things like Ron does and and, and, and certainly the ALS clinics that uh, are certified in the United States to provide compassionate, comprehensive care uh, for patients like, like John and, and others who are afflicted with ALS, but also for their families as well. One thing I've learned from just talking to, to Greg and Nancy Butler is, um, you know, uh, J. Alfred Prufrock Proof- talks about how uh, his life is being measured out with coffee spoons. This is like measuring your, uh, your life with coffee spoons when there's a hole in the coffee can and the coffee's trickling out the bottom of it too. And so for um, ALS patients, I know that delays are really bad. Like if the battery that you got for something doesn't work or insurance is fighting you on something, a week goes by, two weeks go by. It's not like a week for you or me. It's a week of this incredibly precious time. And, and it's also possible possible that if too much time goes by, the thing they were trying to make happen or work, the doohickey that, that they maybe thought that they needed isn't even going to work. They're at a different stage by then. You want to talk a little bit about that? Right. And that's why it's important uh, to have a multidisciplinary care team. Uh, When ALS patients come to our center and most centers in the United States, they will be seen by upwards of eight people. And sometimes it's a little tiring. we've, We've been told that and we understand. But we have a dedicated social worker, nurse, respiratory therapist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, and dietitian that just care for ALS patients. And it provides an incredible amount of support, Colin. And fighting for those things, you're right. A week could go by. Two weeks could go by. You're waiting for Medicare to approve something. Uh, people that are working in Medicare, you know, they don't mean any harm by it. But for the patients, it's very, very difficult. And that's where we come in and we push things. We get in people's faces sometimes, but it's important to to, to have this kind of resource for patients with ALS. You know, uh, Jill, watching this movie, um, it, it seems as though um, in many respects it, it's – it's partly a story of identity, too. You know, I mean, because this disease takes things away, after a while, you're not the person who runs anymore. You're not the person who dances. You're not the person who – and that raises the question, well, then who am I? Who, who is this person? And it seems as though watching John Imber go through this that he's answering that question in really interesting ways, too. He's sort of thinking, well, I'm that person. I'm this person. I'm that person. You just took away this stupid disease, just took away all these other things from me. So this is who I am. Uh, I don't know if that – does that make any sense to you? Um, I, I see that coming out, talking about his relationship with his son, talking about his you know, relationship with his friends, his community. It's almost as though he's, by having other things taken away, finding things out about the core of himself. It's almost like you distill who you are more and more and your life inside your brain is generally totally unaffected mm-hmm. and as less and less on, of your extremities work – it's almost like it becomes more potent and powerful what's the sharpness of the humor or the mind. I mean, he didn't miss anything because there was less distractions from other sensibilities. That, um, 
I was going to say something else, and I forget. Well, I will give you a chance to think about that. Let's play just one more clip from uh, Ember's left hand uh, that I think speaks very much to what we're saying right now. Well, it's all there now in the left hand, but with the kind of freedom that any artist in the world would die for. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the only thing that keeps my spirits up because nobody in the world would want to have what I have. But it's given the work a kind of impetus, insistence, freedom, authenticity, honesty that you can't have with your right hand if you've trained it. And all of a sudden, even if I try, my hand does something that's like primordial, you know, like primitive, like insistent, that overrides what my brain tells it to do. It does mostly what my brain tells it to do, but then it makes a few mistakes. (laughs) The mistakes are great. So that, for me, by the way, is the moment the mic drop moment in the movie for me where my jaw's hanging open going, wow. Mm-hmm. Like, I really... And yet you have to be watching him paint to really get this, too, and, and to see what's going on. But, but Ron Hoffman, you know, this... Another thing we hear here at the beginning of that quote is a sense of humor. And it seems to me... Uh, well, you know Nancy Butler pretty well. I mean, she has us roaring with laughter in church sometimes about stuff that's really, uh, on its flip side, incredibly sad. But you... You know, you hear, um, and, and in at one point elsewhere in the movie, uh, Jill, you say the kind of vaudeville side of him is coming out even more and more, and he's kind of in portraiture sessions where he's just getting the person that he's painting to crack up. But uh, not everybody has a great sense of humor. Not everybody has a great sense of humor when they've got a really, really terrible disease. But boy, it, it's a great arrow in your quiver if you've got it. Yeah, uh, sense of humor, along with hope can be an incredible companion when you're dealing with the uninvited guest in the room, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, John certainly had that. Um, You know, it's a difficult piece for people who are diagnosed with something like ALS and for them to be able to, uh, for them to be able to speak, to, you know, to speak their truth or to be sitting with someone in clinic in, in, uh, in, in, in our clinics to be able to um, – for them to be able to be witnessed by someone and to be able to speak a language, the art of language, mm-hmm. to be able to show up for people and to really, really listen to what they say and to answer those questions. Uh, it can be incredibly difficult, yet – there's a way of doing it with uh, just listening and uh, laughter and uh, a sense of humor. Uh, it gets back to this, uh, the reality, being able to uh, become more familiar with the reality of our own mortality because that's what we're facing. Mm-hmm. And if we don't know how to show up for those individuals, if we don't have a grasp of language, uh, it can make it that much more difficult. We see people, Kevin sees people, I see people, who are in these extreme circumstances. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, the more conscious people can become uh, and the more that we can assist them and uh, articulating what can or cannot unfold, the potentiality uh, of what the outcome may or may not be is incredibly important. And John did it with an incredible sense of humor. Um, and that's what I'll remember about him. Um, Dr. Kevin Felice, um, there's another part of this, too, that I guess it 
once again, we, we're talking once again about how this disease presents itself in, in myriad ways. Um, and for some people, I think sort of death shows up when it shows up. But for a lot of ALS patients, you have to make a whole series of choices too, right? I mean, probably the key one is, am I going to have assisted breathing at some point? There's a lot of choices along the way, and part of the art of what we try to do in the clinic is see where patients are, how what they need at the time, and how ready they are to speak about certain things. Uh, sometimes patients with very mild disease will want to know all the nuts and bolts right away, and you know, from breathing tubes to feeding tubes, et cetera. And uh, we try to avoid those conversations early on, especially uh, in, when patients have mild disease, just to kind of get them. To, to accept things as they are at present. And, and along the way, there are many choices that they have to make, and we, we try to educate them as best we can on those choices uh, from breathing tubes to feeding tubes, et cetera. Although these days, you know, probably if you were treating, you know, Charles Mingus or David Niven or some famous person like that years ago, um, they would be kind of dependent on you for whatever that narrative is now. I know Nancy being sort of a natural, naturally curious uh, and kind of self self-teaching person. She just jumped on the internet, started watching YouTube videos of people on ventilators and stuff, and going thinking, "Oh, so that's what that looks like." I don't know how would I feel about that. So, pe- people do their own kind of self-testing of this. Patients are very educated about the disease, and they're also the organizations, the ALS Association and the Muscular Dystrophy Association, provide uh, a really uh, a. N- good information, informative information for patients about their conditions. So patients are, in general, very well educated and understand what the what the decisions will be well before they have to be made for the most part. By the way, I was talking about sense of humor. Uh, there's a book out that I only heard about today called Home is Burning uh, that is apparently sort of the David Sedaris uh, and... and uh, uh, and and David Eggers' version of a memoir. It's a memoir about a father with ALS. It's about to be made into a movie starring Miles Teller. Uh, it came out last October, and apparently, I mean, most of the things that I read about the book, I couldn't even tell you on the air today. They're, they really kind of go to uh, places that we don't go on public radio, but apparently it's... Uh, Uh, another example of using humor to get through all of this. So we are going to take a little break. We're going to continue this conversation, and we'll be back. Uh, this is a show that we're doing uh, about ALS. We're also doing it about a very specific documentary um, that involves ALS. With us in studio is Dr. Kevin Felice, a neuromuscular neurologist and a director of the Neuromuscular Center at the Hospital for Special Care. Jill Hoy, artist and wife uh, of another artist, John Imber. Uh, he is the subject of Imber's Left Hand, a documentary about uh, his um, diagnosis with, with ALS and, and um, the way he continued to paint in the face of just incredible obstacles, but sort of relearning painting almost every day, learning uh, a different way. It's an amazing movie. It's going to be showing Tuesday of next week, April 5th at 7 p.m. at Emanuel Synagogue uh, in West Hartford. It's part of the JCC uh, Hartford 
uh, Jewish Film Festival, actually, the 20th Mandel JCC, Hartford Jewish Film Festival. Uh, and so please think about going to see it. It's, it's, it's an art lesson. It's a love story. It's uh, a story about uh, ALS. Also with us in studio is Ron Hoffman, uh, founder and director uh, of Compassionate Care ALS and the author of Sacred Bullet, Transforming Trauma to Grace While Tending uh, Terminally Ill. We're about to talk to Jay Fishman as well. Before uh, we get to, uh, to Jay, just very quickly, I know, Ron, you wanted to follow up on something that Kevin was saying about uh, choices people make. Yeah, and oftentimes in our clinics, uh, they talk about goals and outcomes. And for me, the verbiage is choices and possibilities because there are so, so many. And uh, when is the right time to bring those up? And oftentimes our families, patients, if you will, lead those conversations. But I, I think the one thing, if I'm attached to anything, and I think it's our responsibility is to, if we can do one thing for individuals and families, is hopefully bring calm guidance and awareness to these extraordinary circumstances that they face. We're going to add another voice to this conversation. Jay Fishman is current chairman of the board and former CEO for Travelers. Uh, he, too, has uh, an ALS diagnosis. Welcome to the conversation, Jay Fishman. Well, thank you, Colin. It's nice to be here with you today. Kevin, uh, uh, nice to be listening to you for the last bit, and uh, you all have the story right. So um, maybe you could just quickly tell us, uh, I mean, every single ALS story is a slightly different story. Um, how did you discover that you have this disease? Um, well, I, um, I was experiencing bad back symptoms and was doing all the things that one should do when you uh, have a bad back. I was seeing uh, orthopedic physicians and uh, dutifully going to physical therapy, exercising. Uh, and, and in fact, I do have a problematic back, which made the diagnosis even more complicated because problems do evidence themselves in the MRI. Um, but thankfully, I was with physicians who were uh, not so quick to operate. They kept indicating that they certainly saw the challenges in my back, um, but that just wasn't accounting for uh, all of my symptoms. I was fortunate in that regard. My the version that I have is, is sometimes referred to as uh, axial or, or core, meaning that the initial muscles <clears throat> that were impacted, actually my kind of abdominal core muscles, uh, also my diaphragm, <clears throat> and so my, my breathing, breathing challenges uh, for me have been leading the way. So uh, it really initially manifested itself as a, a weak back, an inability to uh, stand up straight for periods of time, to um, it, 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 my my body kept wanting to lean to the right, uh, inexplicably couldn't couldn't understand it. And um, finally, after after repeated visits to physicians, so someone one of them suggested I visit a neurologist, and that was uh, the beginning of the of the process of being diagnosed, which which wasn't even that easy even then. Um, Kevin, this is not that unusual a story, I don't think. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I know it from Nancy Butler. Uh, it took a long time to pin this diagnosis down. It just apparently isn't something, uh, Kevin Felice, where you can run a blood test and say, you've got it, you don't have it. No, uh, Jay's course is similar to many patients. They start with a problem in a certain area, and uh, m many things that aren't ALS are thought of first, uh, and and sometimes patients do have neck issues and back issues and have surgery that unfortunately is unnecessary prior to being diagnosed with ALS. But uh, because it can, as Ron mentioned earlier, uh, it can look like many different things uh, or many different diagnoses, sometimes it's very difficult to establish the diagnosis right away. 
And I think Jay Jay has uh, explained that well. And, and Ron, for somebody like Jay or somebody like John Ember or, or Nancy Butler, obviously getting the diagnosis sooner isn't going to necessarily help you treat the disease or anything like that. But it does – the sooner you know, the sooner you know what you need, right? The sooner you can – You know, yeah. I, I, I think so. Uh, again, when I met John, we immediately dropped into this place of there was a familiarity. It's like we knew one another and we were able just to sit down, share, and I listened and he shared. Oftentimes it's about just getting in the door – Getting in the door. As a family I met yesterday, the mother had been diagnosed with ALS. She had no interest in meeting me at all. I met her daughters, her husband, and several other people, and uh, they were expressing their concerns. So it's assisting them in navigating, as I said before, the complexities of living with this illness. What do we need to do? Some people are completely lost. And, you know, there's so many uh, circumstances that arise in the questions and the fear. And uh, if you can imagine receiving a diagnosis such as ALS or otherwise, the incredible experience of receiving such news, that's a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And so how do we tend to that? It's so much more than physical stuff, than equipment. The psychosocial dynamics are imperative to address and the grief and the trauma and uh, all that comes with that. It's finding the appropriate resources. Mm -hmm. I would would take a, a little exception to the notion that um, that sooner isn't better, mm-hmm. and and there are <clears throat> there certainly are no cures, mm-hmm. and even the treatments are modest. <clears throat> but the data tells you for those who tolerate the one FDA approved drug uh, for ALS, those who tolerate Riluzol well, the earlier you go, you come on to that drug, the the more you can bend the curve of deterioration, and mm-hmm. that's important. And and there are a series of behaviors that that actually can accelerate the disease. Lots of data to to demonstrate that trauma uh, can accelerate the disease or illness. And so, you get into some very basic behavioral stuff. Critical to take a flu shot. Critical if you're of age to have an ammonia shot. Really important to protect your well-being as your as your ability to respond to illness, particularly those of us with, with respiratory issues, keeping your lungs clear, keeping them working for as long as possible. These are critical differentiating points, I think, for making the most of the, disease, of the time you have. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually an advocate of the sooner you know, the yeah, more yeah. impactful you can be. That makes sense. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Kevin, about well, that? I, Jay's right. And also to avoid unnecessary procedures has mm. You know, the, sometimes the diagnostic uh, approach and, and testing you know, for, for different neurologic disorders can include invasive procedures like muscle biopsies and uh, all types of surgeries. And, and, you know, so it is important to get that diagnosis as soon as possible. And, and uh, that's why getting people in the hands of a, neuromuscular, a neurologist or neuromuscular specialist early on is a really important first move uh, for other physicians out there. And also bringing in uh, maybe integrative type uh, therapies or treatments. Uh, I, I agree with Jay. I mean, diet is incredibly important. But at the same time, we all do not have the same capacity in navigating all this. Mm-hmm. Some people are so incredibly traumatized by the experience and uh, they may be completely shut down. Others have the wherewithal or the resources or the ability to educate themselves, the willingness to go online or not go online because there's a great deal of drama and 
in the world, but it's finding the resources and the individuals that can help us navigate, that will take the time to sit with us, because it obviously can be incredibly frightful. I think this is also a situation where, because your mind is pretty clear, you, you, you get to make a bunch of choices. There are hard choices. There are unhappy choices. But you decide what you're going to do with the time that you've got and the resources you've got and the energy you've got. Uh, for Nancy Butler, there was a point where she was – she's pretty far along in the disease and, and was already pretty far along in the disease. Uh, and she announced to all of us that she was going to fly to Minneapolis uh, and give a speech uh, a, 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 to a bunch of other uh, Christian ministers and like the whole congregation. Our mouths kind of hung up. You're going to do what? You're going to go in an airport? You're going to get you cold? You're, going to, you're not going to do that. But she did it because uh, that's like what she had to do. And she's a wonderful example of someone who's living her life. Yeah. It's imperative. And again, oftentimes people need that motivation and um, just some guidance. And this is how you can do this. And, and John, the this, this story about John is just an incredible story. And and it shows a person whose spirit is not being put down by his disease. And it's wonderful to see that. But uh, some patients never accept the diagnosis or the condition that it's or, – or the things that it's caused. And and, uh, and we have to – as in the clinic and, and family members have to deal with that as well. Um, and, and so those are tougher situations for us. And uh, – and, Jill, this is something that comes out in the movie, right, that he's ultimately – I mean, at least by the time we meet him in the movie, it's like, okay, I've got this disease. What is this disease? What am I going to have to do? I mean, there isn't any question for him that he's got the disease. And, and then it's more a question of what do I do now? Yeah, and needing to talk about death and dying was a distinct part of John's grappling. And what I am struck with by both Ron and Kevin is – not wanting to overwhelm the person, but to be there in the moment where they are and now you need this or now this person wants to talk about death. They didn't last week. Mm. What what you may need in that moment really varies in spirit as well as the grass nuts and bolts of machinery. For, for what it's worth, <clears throat> the best advice I've received at least so far, and I'm I'm coming up on two and a half years post-diagnosis is to lean into the disease. Mm-hmm. It was an expression that Dr. John Hansen Flush in the University of Pennsylvania, who, who is my uh, pulmonary physician, uh, right from the beginning, he, and, and, I, and I've come to terms with that, and I think it's exactly right. It's preparing, understanding, being ready. Look, these are all choices, those of us who have the disease make? How are you going to respond? It's perfectly reasonable to someone to go sit in a corner and cry and hide. And then to others of us, it's perfectly reasonable to understand that we all go eventually. Every single one of us will face this path. And so now it's your turn. And what do you want to do with the time? How do you want to use your resources? What do you want to do with your energy? And uh, I've been fortunate that I have fallen into that second category. I, I, I'm not sure where the strength comes from. Uh, maybe it's partially I'm 63 years old. I've been in and out of ALS clinics now for a while. I see way too many 40-year-old patients with young children. And the challenges and issues that they face as the disease progresses and its physical manifestations become more apparent, 
with every succeeding month to young children, these are real challenges. So, yeah, they, we all face different issues, but at least, at least for me, um, I've chosen to lean into it, be prepared, do everything I can to maintain the quality of my life and my friendships and my family relationships and my relationship to work. And, and honestly, just as important now, my relationship to the ALS community, because I have a responsibility there now. And, and Jay Fisherman, maybe you could say a little bit more about this. I mean, obviously, everybody, uh, you know, people do what they can do when they get this disease. Uh, for Nancy Butler, that's uh, preaching, that's uh, uh, getting the word, the message across that she's wanted to get across her whole life. For John Imber, it's uh, a lot about painting right up to the last day, if possible. You're somebody who can direct a lot of resources uh, at this problem, and I know you've 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 done that. That you've used the position that you have in the world and the community to uh, direct resources. At, at research, at care, at treatment. I don't know if you want to mention one or two of the initiatives sure. that are really important to you. I'd love to. The, there was a conversation earlier in your show about the hypothesis that these are actually individualized diseases, that, that it isn't one ALS, it's multiple versions. The, my, my wife and I, through our physician, in, in full transparency, Jeff Rothstein at Johns Hopkins, became aware of uh, his effort to do genomic and proteomic sequencing of a 1,000 patients. That's a technology that one couldn't have envisioned 10 years ago, couldn't have uh, afforded five years ago. And now, through technology, a whole different approach is possible. We, we were the keystone funders into that. That brought in a, a bunch of other people. We had the opportunity uh, to meet Lee Rizzuto at ALS Finding a Cure, a remarkable man whose daughter-in-law has the disease and and is really leaning into it. In fairly short order, we were able to put together $20 million and launch this enormous basic data project. There are data processing firms, well-known ones, that will take this data. By the way, it's all open source. It's posted onto the, onto the net. Any researcher in the world can get at it looking for patterns. Because once you find patterns, then hopefully you find treatments. One of the real frustrations with a disease is someone has a thought, it seems to be helpful to, let's say, 20%, indifferent to 50%, and actually hurt 30%. And so there's a whole question of how does one proceed when you get those kinds of divergent results. And so this project is off and running. And in fact, I think this week we will take our 100th sample from patients. And by the time we get to 1,000, we will have reached statistical significance to, to hopefully point out genetic patterns that are not visible to us today. What I loved about this was that it was basic science. Let's, let's take a step back. Let's worry a little less about finding the cure, and let's make sure first we understand the disease because the technology has now enabled us to do that. That was terrific. As I began to engage in the community, I became aware of how woefully inadequate the care for current patients is and how difficult and frustrating it can be. And one of the biggest things is losing one's voice. I'm, I'm fortunate that at two and a half years, I'm, I'm not dealing with that yet. I will at some point, uh, but not yet. And when you watch people lose their voice, their inability to communicate to their kids, their loved ones, it, it's heartbreaking. We became aware of a fellow up at Boston Children's Hospital, John Costello, who was probably the leading technologist in, I'll, I'll call it generically, voice banking in recording your voice before you lose it so that 
when you have to rely on technology to speak for you, it's your voice and not a, a, a GPS voice, not a, not a car system voice. The, the, the wonder of that is that it's a process that is actually very hopeful, not to cure the disease, obviously, but in those early days when you have a sense that there's, your senses, there's nothing you can do for yourself, that's just not true. Start recording your voice. It's not expensive. It's easy access technology. And I've seen family members do it in group, and, and it's therapeutic and positive. And then once that inevitable loss of voice occurs, people will look back on the experience of that voice banking, and, um, and it's good. It's really good. It keeps you connected. So we've, we've been important. Uh, people see me on the street now. They walk across the street. I'm in shameless fundraising mode. <laughs> my own resources my own resources and anybody else who can help. And, and fortunately, my, my business career being such, many people have been helpful. We've now raised, contributed or raised for John some $6 million, and that's kind of off and running. Right. That's not a jump change. All right, Jay Fishman, I know that we promised you that you'd be able to go at 1.50, so we're going to take a break here and regather ourselves and finish up this show. But Jay Fishman, thank you so much for joining us today. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Asti. Thanks to Bill Curry for introducing us to Jill Hoy. For show pages and news articles, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the strange genius of Buckminster Fuller. Now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, we are back. Uh, our time is uh, limited. Uh, I know that there are lots of other questions and we won't be able to deal with uh, all of them. But uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Kevin Felice, um, you know, I, there's got to be a bunch of people sitting out there listening and thinking, what about Stephen Hawking? Uh, how come he's had this like forever? Uh, Kyone Wolf has a relative, I think, who's had um, uh, ALS for something like 40 years and still isn't on a ventilator. Uh, I mean, uh, we've said maybe this is a whole bunch of different diseases. Uh, and it, uh, for some people, it doesn't seem to be quite the, the quick death sentence that it is for others. No, and, and the problem is that one of the first questions patients ask you is, how long am I going to live? And you know, we don't have a good answer for them, even though we, most of us have experienced this for doing this for 25 years because for some folks, the disease sometimes plateaus uh, and, and as it do, did for uh, Dr. Hawking. Uh, it, uh, we, we have patients today that I first, I first saw in 1990 mm -hmm. uh, who are, are still uh, with us and doing fairly well. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it makes it difficult to, uh, uh, you know, we pr try to provide that information to patients and let them know there are people that do survive a longer period of time, and we don't know for sure if that will be you, but, you know, but, but it makes it difficult sometimes to counsel people on when certain things are going to happen to them. Mm. Um, Kevin, also, before we run out of time, one of the other mysteries of this is that um, obviously there's a, some smallish uh, genetic component here, but there also seems to be maybe some kind of environmental component. We do know that if you're in the military, your risk of getting this disease seems to go up dramatically for reasons that we don't necessarily comprehend beyond that, that correlation. You're right. Approximately 10 percent of patients have genetic ALS uh, and the rest are sporadic, but even those sporadic cases sometimes will have 
abnormalities in certain genes that predispose them to ALS, number one. Number two, there probably are environmental issues that will predispose or worsen ALS symptoms. Uh, Right now, head trauma, athletic ability, uh, Gulf War veterans had a higher increase of ALS than the average citizen. So, yeah, there there are environmental issues that we do not understand completely at this time, which uh, appear to influence ALS, the progression and onset. Um, I just uh, we're, we have like a minute left, so um, Jill Hoy. One thing you know, we were talking about the voice banking before, and the, it leads to a very funny scene uh, that we can't actually uh, quote directly uh, from the movie uh, "Ember's Left Hand," where uh, John is thinking about uh, phrases that he might want to record uh, so that his voice can say them later. But uh, in, in his case, he didn't actually really lose his voice anyway, right? It, it dropped to us was a whisper, or I'd say he pretty much lost his lost voice. It, yeah. yeah. It did end up being very difficult to decipher. But there were those of us who could or mm. people, you know, he had an assist painting assistant who somehow against all odds figured, knew what John was saying. Yeah. There's slurring that there and lung capacity issues and stuff, but you yeah. can sort sort of understand. And and uh, Ron, you were saying not everybody winds up uh, uh, doing the voice banking thing or, or no, using the voice banking. No, thing. I mean, and it's a wonderful thing. John Costello is extraordinary. He's a friend and colleague. Um, but no, everyone doesn't, uh, you know, end up using it. Uh, it's it's not available to everyone. How do you get everyone there? Mm-hmm. But what's most important is I met many people who've never completely lost the ability to speak. That's mm-hmm. the piece of this illness that a lot of people don't understand. Just like many people still think uh, uh, that uh, you lose all your cognitive abilities, you don't. There's something mm-hmm. called FTD, so uh, frontal temporal dementia. Um, so it looks uniquely different. Mm-hmm. Um, our work is about walking side by side with folks and just attending to them as best we can. All right, we're going to have to stop there. I want to thank Dr. Kevin Felice uh, from the uh, Center for Spe- uh, the Hospital for Special Care, Jill Hoy, artist uh, and uh, wife of artist John Ember, and Ron Hoffman, executive director of Compassionate Care ALS. Thanks to Jay Fishman for joining in, too. Thanks for my great producer, Betsy Kaplan, a nurse. Good to have a nurse for your producer with a show like this. 